0: I want to ask you a few questions as we get started today. What do you think of when I say the word love? And what kind of actions come to your mind that you think most demonstrate genuine love? And while I've got you thinking about that, I know I'm going to date myself. But let me ask you, how many of you have ever heard this line... Love means never having to say you're sorry. Let me actually see a show of hands. Yeah, a lot of old people. (laughs) Older. Because that's the line from a 1970 blockbuster movie, Love Story, that was nominated for seven Academy Awards. But despite all the hoopla and affirmation from Hollywood, we still got to stop and ask ourselves... Does love really mean never having to say you're sorry? And as we're looking at this thing called love a little more closely... Does love by its very definition restrain you from ever saying anything unpleasant... Or doing anything uncomfortable towards the one you say you love? Now while I got you thinking about love... Don't stop, but I want to connect it to something. I want to take our thoughts of love and connect it to the local church. Not the church universal, local church. Connect these two. And to do that, I want to tell you a true story. Because I think this story illustrates well why I believe the Bible calls every believer to actually be a part of and plug into. An organized local church that has appointed leaders who exercise God-given authority to help all of us, themselves included, but all of us, to truly love each other in all the ways God's word calls us to love each other as the family of God. There was a single mother living in one of the largest cities in our nation. Big, urban, concrete, noisy, honking horns. And she was raising two kids on her own. And this was, this was fairly new. She'd just been through a painful divorce and was hurting. She'd, ra- she'd been raised Roman Catholic, but she was hurting and she was hungry for something more than she'd seen in the Catholic church growing up. And she started spending a lot of time in a little park near her apartment complex where she would sit on this bench and watch her two kids play on the playground. But it was a long bench. Really, really long park bench. And she began to notice at the other end of this bench, a handful of people would gather who were bringing big Bibles and colored highlighters. And they would spend time together laughing and talking and while their kids played on the playground. And as time went on, and she was regularly on that bench, and they were regularly on the other end, the, the numbers were growing. It was going from 5 to 8 to 10 to 12 to... God was at work in the city, saving people. And that group grew to about 30 new Christians that God was just saving around the neighborhood. And she began to scoot down the bench towards them. She was attracted to what was going on, what she saw, what she heard. And she began to sit with them and they began to befriend her and she befriended them. And in the mercy and grace of God, God used that little group of Christians to lead her to Christ And for the first time ever in her life, she tasted what it was really like to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Rather than just try to practice religion, which is all she'd known growing up. Eventually, another seasoned believer moved into the neighborhood and joined that little group and started to sort of lead the group. But... There was no official commitment. There was no membership. There was no accountability. There was no officially agreed upon leader. Just a group of Christians hanging out together. Doesn't get any better than that. No buildings, no budgets, no rules, no accountability. No, we just all do this together. There's no set aside leader. Yes, I'm setting you up. And it was all so wonderful. And they were loving it. And they were growing. And they were changing. And it was so much better than they'd ever experienced. Any of them that had been a part of a local church. Better than anything they'd experienced in their local churches. They'd ever tried to be a part of. Until something happened. That always happens. And it's something that God knows is going to happen. One person in that little group of Christians. Stepped right into sin and refused to repent. And different people from the group, I mean, it was public. It was not a secret. It was known by them and the neighborhood. This one woman was abusing alcohol. And different ones would speak to her and pull her aside lovingly and say, what's going on? Can we help you? This isn't right. You can't. And she made it clear she was adamant I don't have to listen to any of you all. Who are you to speak to me? It's me and Jesus. It's none of your business. It's my life. And the little group began to divide. And there was great conflict over how to handle it. Some saying she's right. It's none of our business. It's her and Jesus. And some saying, no, but it is our business. We love her. We know her. And it's a poor testimony to the rest of the neighborhood and the cause of Christ and the gospel. And that little group blew up. And they scattered all over in different directions. Some of them with a fresh reminder as to why they want nothing else to do with other believers. And others plugging into local churches that had appointed leaders and accountability. Here's my point. That little group of believers meeting in the park. Is that not the stuff that people are blogging about today? Oh, just and that's the stuff that Christian dreams are made of. Right? Why can't, why can't the church just be a loose, why does it have to have a name and a certain place and leaders and a creed and a covenant? And why can't the church just be a loose collection of Christians to gather together to sing songs and study their Bibles and love each other and talk to other lost people about Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of what Ryan preached about last week so well. Sin. Because I hope this doesn't shock you. Sin is not just outside in the world. Sin is inside every group of believers. Because every group of believers is made up of sinners. Saved by grace. But sinners nonetheless. And so apart from following all that God tells us to do. There's no way to move forward when sin erupts. There's no way to keep this thing together when sin erupts. This idea of grassroots, just grassroots, loose collection of Christians loving each other with no buildings, no budgets, no creeds, no authority, no no set aside, agreed upon leadership. All sounds great till sin enters the camp. And it always does. And then the dream is over and it all hits the fan and there's no way forward. You can see the same thing in the book of Acts. I'm not just picking on that little group at the playground in in the urban city. You can see the same thing in the book of Acts that is so often lifted up as the apex, the very apex of how the church should function and is sometimes held up as this amazing Christian utopia. I I laugh. I, I think the only people talking that way and writing that way are people that haven't actually read the book of Acts. Is there a freshness in the book of Acts? Is there a passion to talk about Jesus and the resurrection? Is there a prayerfulness and a worshipness and and just a spirit of, man, we love Jesus. We love each other. Let's go. I love it. I want all that. But read all of it. Is there sin in the camp already that erupts on a regular basis that they have to sort out? Louder. Yes. Yes. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Don't take my word for it. Go to Acts chapter 4. And I know I say this, but today it's like, oh, my goodness. If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and say, I'm so sad. Because we're going to use our Bibles. I don't want you to believe just what I say, because I didn't think of this. Our elders didn't come up with this. Our denomination didn't think this. I didn't read it on a blog and say, that's a good idea. Churches ought to function that way. Bible. We're going to be all over our Bibles today so that you see what God's word says. Acts chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul liking it already. That sounds good. Give me that. Bring it. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. There was a love and a sacrificial love for each other. It's like, wow, how often do you see that? And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord. And great grace was upon them. They had great power, great grace, sacrificial love. And oh, by the way, let me give a little aside before we read the next verses. What you're about to read is a description. It's descriptive of what happened. As they begin to sell land and houses and just share everything, nowhere in the scripture does it command prescriptively to do that so it's descriptive it's not prescriptive it's an example of sacrificial love but don't go to acts chapter 4 and these verses and build a case for no Christian should own their own house should own land we should just all have it together in a communistic socialistic kind of way all right so it's an example of just real sacrificial love but the bible nowhere commands this is how you always have to do it here we go Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wow, great stuff going on. But, but, there's always a but, one T, there's always a but that enters into the most glorious moment as long as there's going to be sinners. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Now, right there, that verse indicates, obviously, there was not this sense that it's not yours and you got to give it all. What he's saying to Ananias is when when you owned it and when you had it, it was yours. It was fine for you to keep it as yours. When you sold it, you didn't have to give all the money. But don't lie. And pretend to be something you're not. While it remained, was it not your own? And and, and after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. The very next chapter, chapter 6, we could go on and march our way through Acts. The very next chapter, they end up fighting over whose widows are being taken care of the best. So Gentiles, who are, who are not part of the Jewish lineage, are getting saved. Because now the gospel's for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are getting saved. Jews are turning to Christ. And there's a big fight over whose widows are being taken care of the best. And the Gentile Christian said, you're, you're playing favoritism. You're taking better care of the Jewish widows than you are the Gentile widows. And the apostles actually said, oh my goodness, we don't want to get all caught up in this and stop reading God's word and teaching and praying. Let's set aside some deacons to handle tables and all this. Sounds a lot like the church today. Right? So much for utopia. listen, there's always going to be sin to deal with because the church is filled with people. And so God's word, the answer isn't, I'm done with the church. I'm done with other believers. It's just me and Jesus. I got the internet. I can listen to better sermons than any local pastor. I can listen to better worship songs than any local church worship team we can put together. I'm going to be part of, part of the online church for Jesus Christ problem with that is there's so much the scriptures talk about that just can't be pulled off online with each of you in different places. God intended more than just information to be a part of your life through good teaching. There's something that happens. Oh, there's some unpleasant things that happens when we get close, but there are some good things that happen when we get close. He intended for us to be a part of a local body of believers committed. And so God's word doesn't say Say, so I'm done with the church. I'm done with other believers. It's just me and Jesus. God's word gives us cr- clear principles that can keep us from destroying ourselves and everybody else around us because of the sin that still remains in us and every other human being. So the question isn't, what should we do? What are we gonna do when we have problems with each other? is not, what should we do? God's word tells us. The question is, are we willing to obey God's word? And will we have the right attitude as we do it? And so here's what I wanted to do today. I want to lay out for you today what the Bible says is the way to work through the sin that still remains in believers as they gather together in local churches. And as I do, I want to say to you, I realize that some of you sitting here today may have never heard a sermon like you're about to hear. Ever. But that's why I've tried to tie it closely to Scripture and not just my own opinion. And I've prayed that God would actually use the process of what you're hearing from scripture for great good in your life about this important and loving area of church family life that even if it's new to you and you say what even if you don't like it even if it's not what you saw in any church growing up that at least you would leave here thinking but man he showed that from scripture i better wrestle with that a little more i'd be happy I recognize this may be new to some of you. So here's what I want to do. I want to keep it close to scripture. I've got a number of passages that I simply want to read. Because you know what? When you read God's word out loud, that's very effective. I'm convinced if I just read the first one and fall down dead, it would still do you good. I would not be sorry that you drug out. But since I'm alive, I'm going to make some observations and additional comments about the passages until he strikes me down. So, Let's go to the first one, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Go there in your Bible or the app in your lap so that you can see it for yourself. Matthew 18, beginning of verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. What's the next word? Alone. We're gonna come back to that because oh my goodness, that would be helpful. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now of everything I just read, if I was to take a survey, I venture to say, of, of all those verses, the one that most of you say, I know that, I've heard that. I've quoted that. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I'm in the midst. Almost always it gets quoted at one of the sweetest moments of Christian fellowship. Oh, dang, this is good. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I could just cry, this is so sweet. Oh, all is well, all is right. Uh, So good to be here tonight. So good to sing together. So good to be in this small group. So good, so good, so good. And is that true? Is Jesus there? Is that what's being talked about in the context? Guess what he's saying? Though we turn and often run away from conflict and difficulties and the ugliness of sin in each other's lives, Jesus doesn't. Where two or three are gathered together in my name to do what he just talked about, to try to work out a problem between a brother and a sister or a brother and a brother or a sister and a sister, I'm right there cheering you on, saying this is a good thing. I died for this. Your sin and your sin. Please don't just scatter to the wind work this out. Show mercy, reconcile, extend forgiveness. Where two or three are gathered together in my name to work through a problem, I'm in your midst. It's not just you trying to work it out on your own. Now, before I make some observations from this passage, I want to point out something that that is noteworthy, I think, regarding the church and love and whether I should be a part of one or not. In the Gospels, I'm not saying in the whole New Testament, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only two explicit references to the church. Now there's lots of inferences, but there's just two outright explicit references to the church Matthew sixteen, eighteen, and Matthew eighteen, seventeen. And I want to show you both and I want to pull them together and make a point. Go to Matthew 16 18, which is just a couple chapters previous to where we were. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus speaking. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, look at me before before that just falls flat on you. And you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Oh, my goodness. Did the disciples clearly understand who he really was? No, there was constant confusion over who he really is. The crowds did not understand who he was. The religious leaders were convinced he was not who he kept saying he was. This was huge. Peter got it. Peter was like, you are the the Christ the one we've been looking for, the one that all the Old Testament prophecies have been pointing to, the one that fulfills everything Scripture said God would do to solve our biggest problem, our sin problem. You're it. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Big moment. Great insight. So Jesus says to him in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, let me help you. Look at me. He is not saying, and there are certain people out there that say this. He is not saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, you, I'll build my church. God forbid that it be built on Peter. Peter says great things, then Peter says stupid things. Peter does great things, then Peter does stupid things. Why? Because Peter is a what? Sinner. Jesus is not building his church on Peter. Say, thank you, Lord. What he's saying is you are Peter, and you got it right, Peter. And on this rock, the rock is what you just said, on the rock of this truth that I am the Christ, I am the Son of the living God, I am the fulfillment of all that's been prophesied, on that rock that you just said that came out of your mouth, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So we've got Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. I'm the son of the living God. I'll build my church. Then we got Matthew 18, 17. If you go back to where we started, where he says one goes, two goes. If they won't hear, tell it to the church. Jesus says, I'll build my church. And, and Jesus says, tell it to the church. Let me pull these two, two things together for you in a way that I hope will be helpful. Matthew 16, 18 tells us the church will be triumphant. Because Jesus promised it will be. He's building it. Matthew eighteen seventeen, Jesus is telling you, until I come, there'll be sin to deal with in the church. But I'm telling you how to deal with it. Don't let go of this and say the church is pathetic and is filled with immaturity and weakness and I can't stand it, I don't need other believers. I will build my church, get in here. When you get in on the local church, you're getting in on something Jesus is doing and that he died for. I'll build my church. And oh, by the way, until I come, buckle up. There'll be sin to deal with because there's sinners saved by grace still in that church. Bring these two things together. And here's what I think happens when you get both of what Jesus says explicitly about the church. I'm going to build my church. You don't waste your time being a part of the church. You don't waste your time serving in the church. You're getting on exactly what Jesus is most about in our world today. But don't be surprised if you run into sin while you're in there. Your own and those, that of others. And until I come, there'll be sin to deal with. But address it this way. Deal with it this way. And so our expectation, here's what this should do for you. Our expectation of the church should be no higher than the realism of the Bible. So many times you hear people romantically say, you know why I'm not a part of a local church? Because if I could just find one that's like the book of Acts. If we could just get back to the early church. You show me an early church like the book of Acts and I'd get in it and be committed. Really? Which early church do you want to get back to? As if somehow it was some kind of sweet, problem-free era of passion and power. Which early church do you want to get back to? Jerusalem? Let's just think about a few of them. Jerusalem where they're fighting over who's going to serve the tables and whose widows are being taken care of the best? Yeah, pass on that. How about Galatia, where as soon as Paul got done preaching up Christ and Christ alone and the grace of the gospel, they turned back to the law and legalism and said, it's got to be Jesus plus Jesus plus. Oh, my word. No, no. Don't want to be a part of that legalism and Jesus plus. How about Philippi, where there were two ladies, Yodia and Sinctity, who were so out of sorts with each other. Paul actually names them by name in his letter. How embarrassing is that, right? And says, work it out, ladies. You had a falling out at VBS. Work it out, don't stay mad. Who cares the decision that was made about the gift bags and they didn't take your idea. Oh my goodness, ladies, please. And you gotta remember, When Paul was writing these letters, there was not a printing press. Letters were read publicly and passed around. Imagine the day that was read. And he's he's addressing all kinds of wonderful, glorious doctrinal issues about Jesus laying aside his glory and taking on flesh, and then all of a sudden, and by the way, Yodia and sanctity they're like, ah! Out of the whole church, he's named our names. Work it out, ladies. Oh, oh, I haven't done that yet. Aren't you glad, in the middle of a sermon? And by the way, we got the situation, in, and this is a sermon, but a little aside here. Work it out. Colossae, you want Colossae? Where they decided that Jesus Christ really wasn't enough. Yes, Jesus, but we're more into dreams and visions and angels. We want a mystical experience. What about Laodicea, the church in the book of Revelation that Jesus said, you make me so sick, I want to spew you out of my mouth because you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. You say, no, I've been in a lot of churches like that. Okay. How about Corinth? In the church of Corinth, here we got a group of Christians that it was the first, first group of Christians that were guilty of pastor celebrity worship. It's not just today with the Internet. In the church of Corinth, they had people dividing up and saying, oh, I'm of Paul. Oh, I'm of Peter. Oh, I'm of Apollos. And Paul had to say, What? Don't worship the man that preached the message and led you to Christ. Worship Christ. Don't say, oh, I'm I'm about Paul. I'm about Paulus. I'm about, it's Jesus. And then they started to fight over their spiritual gifts as to who had the greatest spiritual gift, which is the greatest. And, And oh, by the way, then they also began to say, you know what? Maybe the resurrection never even really happened. I think I'll take the church we have today. Right here. There's enough mess. Let's take our mess today. And recognize that God has given us a way through it, a way forward, a way that pleases Him, a way that will all still grow and change by His grace and for His glory. So, now let me make some observations about Matthew 18. Get it open again. Here's the first thing I want you to notice we're talking about a brother. Verse 15. We're talking about a brother. If your brother sins against you, you can insert sister. So, we're talking about Christian to Christian. Don't expect the world to function this way out in the marketplace. They're gonna think you're crazy if you kind of try to practice and walk through this. But for Christians, if your brother sins against you, this is Christian to Christian. Second observation I I wanna note, we're talking about a clear sin, a clear act of sin. If your brother, what? Sins against who? Let me tell you one of the worst things that happens. Someone sees someone else, something happened to them, and they take up an offense on their behalf. I see some of you nodding. Don't do that. If someone sins against you, you. If someone sins against you. And so here's another mistake that Christians make, and it causes chaos in our local churches. It's a clear act of sin, not a preference. Preference. You say, what are you talking about, Brad? I think as I start, you'll get it. I say homeschool, you say public school. I want my kids to be salt and light. I want them to own their faith. Yeah, it's gonna get messy. They might get around some bad kids, but that's the choice we've made and I wanna talk them through it while they're still in my home. The danger is, let me go on before I tell you the danger. You say drinking in moderation The Bible doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk. I say don't drink at all. Do you know all the harm that's been done by alcohol? Are you crazy? You should have nothing to do with it. That's the path to take. I say no movies. Hollywood is wicked and you don't even want to give them a dollar of your money. Because even if you go to a nice PG movie or whatever, you're still giving money to that great beast over there that makes terrible. You shouldn't go to movies at all. But I say I can go to some movies. I could go on. You say Dresses only for women. I say, hey, culotte or pantsuit. I date myself. That was the answer to legalistic churches. I think it's so funny. It's like when it was dresses only, they came out with this thing that was sort of a dress, but had shorts underneath. It's like, yeah, I'm obeying, but inside I'm not. There's some little leggings on this. Yeah, tell me, what what are you going to say now? The mess that has been caused in the church over preferences, because here's the thing. It's so hard for us as sinners not to take what we feel passionately about and attach a couple Bible verses around it in a way that we've said, no, it's not a preference, it's a sin issue. How could you come to any other conclusion? How could you, and we put on other brothers and sisters what our personal preferences are? Nod and tell me you know what I'm taught about and you've seen it happen. It's a clear act of sin, not a preference. And notice thirdly, the process is very clear. He lays out the process of what to do when you think you've been sinned against. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. Say it. Folks, if you don't get anything else and you decide to check out and stop listening after this, stay with me for this one more point. If Christians would go directly to the other Christian they think has sinned against them or offended them without saying anything to anybody else first. Oh, the good that would be done in the body of Christ. And oh, the conflict and confusion that could be avoided. And I want you to write something in your outline that's not there. Squeeze it in. Under that point that you go, it's under the process, go asking questions, not making accusations could you have wrongly misconstrued or understood what just went down towards you by someone else? Is there a chance that there's an explanation and it wasn't sin? Say yes. Yes. So don't go having already judged and decided, you and you always, and I'm so sick of you and I can't believe you. Go saying, help me understand this. That hurt. What were you thinking when you said or when you did? What was going on? I'm really struggling. Go asking questions, not making ac- accusations. And you, here's what happens: people don't want to go talk to the person that they think sinned against them, but they talk to other people. That is gossip and slander, and say, "I can't." You will not believe what Joe did to me. Let me tell you what he did to me because I, I want you to pray for him and pray for me because I'm struggling. I want to show grace and I want to let it go, but I'm struggling. So pray. Pray, you're telling other people, but you have not yet told Joe or Sally, go. You go alone. If they hear you, done, over, all the good that would be done. If they don't, take one or two others with you. If they still don't, tell it to the church. And in a church family this size, if you're a church of 75 or 100, that might be literally the church. But in our church, that would not be helpful to just start telling it to everybody you could see in our church of of almost 2,000 people that say they go here now. In our church, very often, that's simply the elders, the body that represents the church. Take it to that next level. Tell your spiritual authorities so that they can step in and also help try to resolve this. If they won't hear you, put them out. Treat them like a heathen or a tax collector. So, it's another Christian. It's a clear act of sin, not a preference. There's a clear process. Please follow the process and don't skip a step. And you can stay at any one of those steps as long as you want. He doesn't give us a timeline. You could go by yourself and you could go again by yourself and you could fast and pray and go again by yourself. You can stay as long as you want at any one of those steps. He doesn't give us a timeline. And you do not continue to the next step unless there's not repentance. As soon as they say, you're right, I was wrong. Please forgive me, I'm sorry, it's done, it's done. And please know, I've been here almost 20 years. It's reached that final step of putting someone out of the church. I could, I could count it on one hand. We don't go around doing this left and right and think it's one of our funnest things to do. We don't jump to it. I want you to know, even though you wouldn't have all the details, because it wouldn't be appropriate on any Sunday for me to say, sing a song and then tell you a terrible thing that's going on. Sing another song and tell you another terrible thing and just keep you all up to speed. But sometimes when these things finally go down, if you're not careful, you can think, what? Someone should have met with them. Please. (laughs) Hours we've met with them. Months we've met with them. In many cases, years. We err to the side of grace. We're not in a hurry to put somebody out. Grace. And finally, make sure you understand this. The goal is always restoration, that they might sense their sin, repent, and come back. And so it's not out forever. It's like out so that you might be brought back in a right relationship. The goal is restoration. And that shows up much better in the next passage I want you to see. Go to First Corinthians chapter 5 because it spells it out. Instead of just giving us general parameters, you get to listen in on a specific situation that actually was happening in a church and listen to how Paul directs them to deal with this. 1 Corinthians chapter five. 1 Corinthians chapter five, I'm begin reading in verse one. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. He's saying there is sin in your church and it's on, it's on the level that you don't even often see unbelievers live this way. But it's right in your church. It's not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. A man is having sex with his father's wife. And you are puffed up, verse 2. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. What he's saying is, and I have to read into this a little bit. You're actually taking pride over the fact that this is going on and you're not doing anything. I can only make a conjecture. It's like, we're, we're so known for love and grace, we don't do anything about anything because this is all grace, man. It is grace. Don't get legalistic on me. Don't tell me what I can't and can't do. This is just between me and Jesus. You're puffed up and actually proud that you're not doing anything about this. Verse three, for I indeed as absent in the body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved. In the day of the Lord Jesus, your glorying is not good. You taking pride over the fact that you're, you're letting this go and you're turning a blind eye to it and, and it and it really just speaks about grace and love or whatever you think it does that's good. No, it doesn't, he says. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since truly you're unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Christ died to set us free from sins, not to excuse us to live in them. Therefore, let us keep the feast, and with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle... This is interesting. It appears that he's written them once and we don't have that book. It was lost because this is first Corinthians for us, but he's already written them once. so It's actually a second letter to them. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, I'm not saying you can't be around sexually immoral people. You'd have to get out of the world. You're going to work with sexually immoral people. You're going to be next door neighbors to sexually immoral people. You're going to play basketball or do jazzercise with sexually immoral people. I'm not saying, oh, I can't be around you. So says, I'm talking about in the church. In the church with a so-called self-proclaiming brother or sister that's in good standing with your church... Verse 11, but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Again, stop and look at me a minute. Have any of us, has any Christian ever done any of those things? Absolutely. So again, we're not saying if anybody does any of those things, we're moving down the process of church discipline and you're on your way out. The heart of all this is it's someone who persists in this and says, it begins to characterize their very life and they're that person that says, I prayed and asked Jesus into my life and my heart I'm a Christian, I know I'm going to heaven but I can live any way I want. I can live any way I want. I can still persist in this and still say I go to Grace Fellowship Church, sing on the praise team, teach Sunday school class, lead women's ministry, lead a small group but I've got this gross sin that I will not repent of in my life and it's becoming known and nobody does anything about it. That's what we're talking about. Here in these passages that we're looking at. Not to even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore put away from yourselves that wicked person. Here's some observations I want to make from these verses. The first. The sin was specifically mentioned. Verse 1. It's incestuous sexual immorality. We're not left thinking what. We know exactly what and it's unrepentant, and he's saying, doesn't matter, I can do this. Second observation, Paul's greatest concern is not even the incestuous, sexually immoral man, but that the church is doing nothing about it. He's shocked that the church would do nothing about this. Third observation, the process referred to is referred to as delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. So it's not talking about the destruction of his body, But this flesh, this sinful flesh, in essence, Paul is saying, since this so-called brother is saying he knows Christ, but will not let go of this, will not repent, will not turn away, turn him over to Satan, who he's given himself over to anyway in this area of his life, that he may feel what it's like. The isolation, if you want your sin more than you want to please Christ, then you go for it. But you're not gonna stay in this happy middle ground. I live this way, but I still go to Grace Fellowship. I sing on the praise team. I... Does that make sense? I take communion. I'm in, I'm in good standing. No, they wants him to feel, if you want that more than you want to please the Lord, then just have that and feel the isolation of just loving your sin and not repenting. And notice what else is at stake in verse six. Failing to handle this matter risks harm to the rest of the body. Look at verse six. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Is this room filled with sinners? But that is not the same thing as saying, I know that one of our elders is committing adultery because I work with him. And he t- or he's a, he's a pilot and he talks about it openly. And he's an elder at Grace Fellowship. Or she's on the praise team. Or if you let that kind of stuff go, it'll spread. And everybody else will think, well, I guess you can just do whatever you want here. Well, uh, And it's such a horrible testimony to the community who already wants to say, Christians are such hypocrites. They already jump on us for just simple things like criticism or losing our temper or whatever. But when word gets out, people are in gross sin and unrepentant. And oh, by the way, you're, you're in that church. You go every Sunday to that church. Horrible testimony to Jesus Christ and the honor of his name. So this process is reserved. Listen to me. This process we're walking through that we see from Scripture is reserved for those who claim to be Christians and who are committed to the family of God. Here's what I mean by this. In a church our size with almost 2,000 people who claim to say this is their church, we only try to do this. We'll love all of you. But we really, we really seek to do this in love to make sure we're being good shepherds. To those who have said, that is my church. I'm committed. I'm joining. I'm plugging myself in. I'm serving. Please, work in my life. Help me to change and grow. Let's do this together to follow Jesus. We're not chasing after and tracking down every single person that rumbles through here every now and then. That's why I do want you, you say, are you nuts? I do want you to join. So that there'll be that additional love. Let me illustrate it this way. If you've raised kids at all and you hit that season of teenagers, there's some difficult things, but I also want to go on record as saying there's some great things about that season. I loved this thing. If you have teenagers, you don't just have your kids in your house, you have all kinds of kids in your house. Other teenagers, other people's teenagers. And I loved it because they actually wanted to talk to me more than mine. And they thought i was funny and really cool so it was kind of refreshing it helped ease some of the pain but i actually love people and i actually love teenagers what a what a critical time in life and i could tell they would come into the kitchen and i'd be sitting there and everyone's supposed to meet at our house and go somewhere and my kids would stick their head and they just didn't even want to be in the same room it was like let's go and they would just keep laughing and talking with me the other kids they don't have the last name big me and my kids would say let's go we would just hang out together. We'd watch Bengal games together. We'd do stuff together. And I sought to have influence and look for ways to ask good questions and, and to be, you know, a part of their life. And other people in the church served the same way. The Nash's. Sandy Nash in our church. My kids, my older kids still call her Mama Nash. Try not to let that hurt. Mama Nash. But they were over there all the time, spending the night all the time, hanging out with her, eating her food. And she'd do fajitas and everything on the grill and it, And you're glad to have other believers speaking into the lives of your kids. But here's what I do know. The reason they loved Mama Nash so much during some of that season and not me is Mama Nash was not saying the hard things to them that I was. Was my motive, I don't like you. Mama Nash loves you. I hate you. So I say hard things to you. Help me out. (laughs) Did I love my kids more than Mama Nash? but I was willing to risk not being liked to say some things and do some things that were hard, but I love them. But I only did that with all the teenagers in my home with the last name Bigney. I didn't try to do that with any others. They're not my kids. That's what we're doing here in the church. We want to do this with our church family. If you say, that's my church. I'm in that church family. I'm committed. I'm plugged in. We're going to seek to love you in all the ways God calls us to love each other, which includes speaking into each other's lives, go asking questions, saying, brother, this is not like you. Help me understand what is going on here so that we can all keep growing and changing. Let me show you one more passage. Galatians chapter six, just two verses there. Galatians chapter six, verse one and two. Galatians six, verse one and two. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, now, right there, that's helpful. Are we talking about someone who just sins as we all do? This is someone who persists in a certain sin and it's beginning to characterize them and it's got them. Right? If a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Let me help you also. And, and so that you don't think, well, that would be the elders. So I hope the elders deal with all this. Or that would be those godly people in our church that will walk with the the Lord for decades. In the Greek, literally, it says, you who have the spirit. Who has the spirit? Every believer. So we're all on a certain level. We're all to be doing this long. There's so much that goes on in our church that's healthy and good with just believers loving each other and speaking to each other that never goes to the elders, nor should it. It's just normal family life as we're all changing and growing. You have the spirit. If you see a brother over to, see, I have people email me or grab me and say, did you know that so-and-so is doing blah, blah, blah? And I'll say, you've seen this? Yes. Have you spoken to them? Well, no. I want you to. I'm not speaking to them. You saw it. You know it. You go. You go. I don't want to go. They they might not receive it well. They might get mad at me. They might not like me. They may bite me. Do you know sinners saved by grace still bite? They do. But let me say this to you. The reason this isn't going on as much as it should in most churches is, who do you love the most when you don't go? It's not that you love them so much you won't go. It's that you love yourself so much. You're like... That's going to be unpleasant. They might not receive it well. It may change our relationship. They may get mad at me. And who am I? I'm just a sinner myself. You have the spirit. Restore such one. And how do you do it? In a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourselves. Lest you also be tempted. So you don't go on your high horse saying. I can't believe you. I never. I, just, I would never. You got a serious problem and you're about to fall yourself. Beware you who think you stand, lest you, whatever you see in someone else's life, when you go, you ought to go humbly and just saying, thank you, Lord. That's not me caught up in that mess. And I could be wrong. So I'm going asking questions. But even if I'm right, I'm going gently and with humility acknowledging that I myself could be tempted like this. And here's what you do when you do this. Verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You say, what's the law of Christ? Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. And by this We'll all know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Folks, love is not just a fuzzy warm. I sit here and I emote. When I think of you, I love you. It's a love that's willing to risk and step towards another brother or sister and speak the truth in love and ask questions and try to work through this rather than just staying back. It's superficial, safe, I love myself most love that keeps you standing back. Real love. Demands that we risk and move towards each other and love each other, so let me make some observations quickly from these two verses. First observation is the process involves all of us i've already said that, right you have the spirit. Let me insert another one that 's not in the outline. give you a new b. The process takes time. it takes time we don 't do this in a hurry and here 's why I say the process takes time because in that verse where it says you who see a brother overtaken a trespass, go restore such a one. The word restore in the Greek right there is katartizo. And it means to hold a broken bone in place long enough for it to heal. That takes time. This is not like a SWAT team. We're in, rebuke, out, in the car, home. I hope they get better. Oh, you come around and you love them and you listen and they push back a little and you love them some more and you listen and you and you meet and you pray and you it's not in a hurry. It's a process. It's a process driven by love. It is carried out with gentleness and humility, and it actually fulfills the law of Christ. That fulfills the law of Christ. When he said, love one another, and this will characterize that you are my disciples by your love. Let me summarize. Let me summarize a few things that we've seen and draw in a couple other passages for further clarification as we close. Go with me because I want you to get this. God calls the leaders in a church to shepherd the flock. Go to 1 Peter chapter five. Leaders of a church are not like vice presidents of Citibank and whatever and they make decisions and they push paper around and they tell people what to do. That is not it in a church 1 Peter chapter 5, leaders in a church are called to shepherd the flock. 1 Peter 5, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Now, this is noteworthy. They had elders. When, when, When Paul went and preached the gospel, he planted churches, and when he planted churches, he appointed elders. Read your New Testament. It was not a loose collection of Christians who nobody's really in charge and I don't really have to do anything anybody says to me. We'll just kind of all do this together. Disastrous. Are you ever going to find perfect elders to pull this off? No. But this is what God's word tells us to do. The elders who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder... And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. Not by constraint but willingly. Not for dishonest gain but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you. But being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know one of my greatest joys. And there are many in being here with you for almost 20 years. But one of my consistent greatest joys is not this facility that we finally were able to build a building and buy some land. It's not some of the programs in biblical counseling that we have a free counseling center. I rejoice in a lot of that. I consistently rejoice and give God thanks for godly shepherd elders. We don't have guys that just like making decisions. All of our elders lead small groups and do biblical counseling and seek to love on people and and. Keep this in mind. I'm not complaining, but I just want to help you. Many times when you ask a question like a wet, about a wedding policy or some, something, it's not that we don't care. We will try to answer that. But what you don't understand many times is behind the scenes, there's bigger stuff going on, always in a church family this size. We're trying to do soul care. There are lot, lots. I don't know. There are people doing bad things getting caught up in sin we're trying to love them and help them and sort it out and have a meeting and then meet with somebody else and then find out if that's true and then reach out to the other church and find out if they can confirm that these things take time so sometimes when you're questioned about well, what about the wedding policy and why is it and you don't get an answer right away would you love us and pray for us and be patient with us and remember maybe they got a bunch of big stuff going on that's a little more important than this they do Don't hear me saying don't ask your questions and we'll never answer them. But just get the big picture that, oh, man, there's some big stuff going on that we want to obey God. Because here's the other thing. Flip to Hebrews chapter 13. And let me show you, if you've ever had a day where you thought, I wish I could be an elder and just tell people what to do. I'd love that. Give me some of that. Let me show you Hebrews 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Then skip to verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. That's what our elders wake up with every day. I and the rest of the elders will give an account for your souls. How would you like to have that riding on you? And they do it joyfully. And half of our elders work other jobs full-time outside of our church. We try to always keep the elder body more elders that are lay elders than staff elders, just for accountability and freshness and make sure we're not ingrown. Half the elders work a full-time other job, like flying to China, doing hard stuff, deadlines, and then get emails all throughout the week and the weekend saying, oh, there's this situation we need to meet with so-and-so. Can you help us with this? Who can drive to Lexington? Who will follow up? Who will?" And that's what they do for free I get paid they do it for free I am so grateful and they do it well I'm so thankful that we have a Steve Barnett and we have a Bud Fennell that did this for over a decade we had a Mark McFadden we have a Roger Patterson and Rob Lorman and Brian Fannin and Bob Greenwood and Peter LaRufa that I don't do this on my own and the Bible told us it shouldn't be me on my own but here's the deal We're called to shepherd and love you in all the ways that would keep us growing and changing and a good testimony to the community. You're called, not that we can never be wrong, not that you can't ask questions, but notice what it says next in verse 17. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, but that, that would be unprofitable for your soul. If you would seek to work with us in a way that the elders would say, I have joy in doing this, that they wouldn't say, I'm so done. I don't want to serve another term. I'm just tired of being criticized, tired of being attacked, tired of... We'll try to shepherd you humbly as an example. And God calls you to work with us to make it joyful, a joy as we serve together. As the family of God, there's no way we're going to be able to move forward with a church family this size without some order, God-given authority, and following God's prescriptive word instead of just what we think I thank God that so much of what we do is joyful. Oh, the bulk of what we do here is just so joyful. It's actually amazing that we don't have more problems than we do with this many people here. Great joy. But God calls us to love each other deeply and to speak into each other's life and to have a, a real robust love that steps towards a mess and ask questions humbly And seeks to work it out. And Jesus is right there in the midst instead of saying, I'm not going to do that. And I'm sure Jesus will work it out. You got that right. Jesus will work it out. But how he most often works it out is through other people. This is what he's told us to do. This is how he works it out. So two things I want you to take away today as we close. The church will be triumphant because Jesus said he's building it. And the church will be messy because it's filled with sinful people just like me and you. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth investing in. So I would call you to make a fresh commitment to following Jesus by making a real commitment to plugging into his bride, the local church. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. And thank you not just for how to get saved and arrive in heaven one day, but for right now in the push and shove, while we're still sinners and we still have this body of flesh to contend with. Thank you for not just saying, I hope you can work that out. Uh, Work out any problems you have. God, thank you for your word and for instructions and for the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us by your grace and for your glory to obey your word that we might keep love alive and sin would not just crush it. Lord, help us. And thank you that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.